So you guys, as you know, hopefully, if you've been with us, many of you have, and if you're joining us online, we've been in the book of 1 Peter for quite a while. So if you didn't know that, then I'm not judging you, but it might have been a while since you were here with us. Uh, it's been many months. But we've been in the book of 1 Peter, and that's uh, for me, and I, I think maybe Brett would say the same thing, it's, it's a special book to our heart. One of the things that I like to try to do when I get an opportunity to teach, and it fits well with the message, is give you guys some sense of how we started as a church and sort of some of that history, because that gets exciting for people um, to kind of know how this started. Because, I mean, you say you started a church, I think about that a lot, and you're like, well, that's weird. Like, what, you came up with some kind of, you know, weird beliefs and got other people to join you? No, we just were people that were called to follow the Bible and called to be together. But why First Peter specifically is, is exciting is, uh, I guess it's been almost, what, five years? Is that, I'm looking at James. Has it been almost five years? It's crazy. Four and a half years ago, uh, the Spross family and, and us found ourselves kind of looking for what the Lord had for us next. And we didn't know what church home he would have for us and what he would do. Brett certainly wasn't at that point, I think, thinking about taking on a full-time pastoring role. We were just kind of like, ah, we needed to, to sit. And so I said, Brett, why don't you come down to our house Sunday morning? I mean, the first time in quite a while that we didn't know exactly where we were going to go. I said, why don't you guys come down and we'll just be together and we'll watch a, a service from one of the churches that we both really had liked. So we, we, you know, he comes down and we get it all set up and pull the screen down and we're ready to go. And they don't live stream their service. So uh, the one that I always think was amazing is that first week, what, what kind of jumped out from them on their front of their webpage was they had an hour-long panel that they had recorded that we ended up watching, which is about uh, their philosophy on planting churches. So I was like, oh, all right, Lord, I see, I see what you're doing. But then also what they did is they were starting that week a new book, a new study and a new book. And that's partly why we were excited. We're like, oh, we'll start in this new book. It'll be great. In First Peter. And that started the following week. So they recorded it that week and we started watching a week delayed. And it was incredible. Why was it special particularly? As we've kind of been hearing, right? First Peter is a book that Peter wrote to people that felt like exiles. They felt like they were in places and they were. They were now spreading out. The Jewish community and the Christian community was leaving out of where they had been foundationally started and now spreading out. And they felt like exiles where they were. They felt culturally different. They felt values different. They didn't know exactly how they fit in. They really felt like they were sort of visitors or, or alienated in their community. And we didn't exactly feel that. I mean, we still felt that this was our community, but we found ourselves feeling a bit like exiles, not knowing exactly where we should go and what we should do. And so it was exactly where the Lord would have us. And we followed all through that summer through a study, through this book, and it was incredible. And that was really what the Lord put in our heart that led to us feeling like he was calling us to become a church, to gather together with other families, and ultimately to launch South Point later that fall. So this book for me is foundational because this was where the Lord was speaking to us as we started what he was working in this body. And so as we go back and we look until now, Peter has been really doing a whole bunch of things. One, he's been exhorting these believers who were scattered abroad that they needed to stand strong. He also is repeatedly reminding them of Christ's example, the riches of the inheritance that they have in him, the hope of him returning again and taking them to heaven. He's instructing them as believers on how to respond when they're attacked for their beliefs. 
Um, and even if they're living under the rule of evil people, as Brett talked about, right? How do we respond when we're under governments? And even if those governments are not just not great, but they're literally possibly evil people and some of the most evil rulers in history and how Peter talked with them and how they should respond. And I think not related to that because the, under the rule of evil people isn't probably the best way to then to talk about husband and wives. Hopefully it's not that kind of a relationship. Um, but he talked about how to relate as husbands and wives and that relationship in the house. Um, so he's been pouring all these really important things that I think are also great and have been important for us to hear as we come out of a difficult time and as our governments try to figure out the best way to keep us safe and manage our, our you know, how do we interact and how the things, Lord, and not get it right and not get it totally wrong and, and everybody having their opinions. This feels like a really apropos message and a really important place for us to be again, because we've sort of been exiled again, not sent into exile intentionally, depending on how you feel, but spread out and not sure how we fit in. So that's where we find ourselves. That's where Peter found them as he was talking. I also wanted to, to, to turn a little bit and recap the kind of craziness that the Smith family has had and tie it back to that in the past few weeks. And I, I, won't, I won't do this... Um, for pity, I, you guys have been amazing, but it, it's been a pretty crazy, I don't even know at this point, three weeks, two weeks, it's, it's been a little bit of a blending. Um, as I think many of you know, Christina's mom has been, uh, was diagnosed with cancer uh, almost 17 years ago um, and, and had actually a ton of really good years, but in the past year and even in the past few months, um, it had, things had looked not as good. And so that was, has been going on. And We've been blessed to have a lot of really great time, spending time with her, doing activities and doing things. It's, it's been amazing. Um, but in the past six weeks, it had gotten really difficult and we could tell that, that her time was coming. And now go two and a half, three weeks ago and all of a sudden out of the blue, I get a call and my cousin, one of the very close cousins that I grew up with, almost like a brother, lived two blocks away, passed away at the age of 37, unexpectedly, sort of inexplicably, um, we don't know. And so all of a sudden it was like, ah, oh, uh, Lord, I'm getting my mind prepared for this, what's coming. And so we grabbed a few of us, my wife, my youngest son, the older two were still in school and we decided and we flew back to Chicago and we're in Chicago on Wednesday night, Thursday, Friday, the funeral. I had the opportunity to, to, to do his funeral, to lead it um, and hopefully bring some healing to the people, that, those of us that were left behind um, and do his burial. And then uh, you exhale Saturday night we're getting in bed, we're packed up, we're ready to go. We have the first flight, oh, dark 30 in the morning on Sunday morning. We're gonna make it in time. We're even gonna be able to come to church that morning. Um, sort of crazy to fly from Chicago and make it to a 10 o'clock service, but it was possible. And we get a call right after midnight, Chicago time. My mother-in-law, the Lord had called her. The Lord had called her to heaven. And the sense of that washing over us and that sense of being a part of not being to be there, it was overwhelming. But we followed through, we came back in the morning, we had this, I think, rich time of, of healing and, and time to say goodbye, uh, but obviously it's a lot. And then the family went into some of their traditions and prayers and things that were going on and all these aunties and uncles descending upon the, my, my father-in-law's house every, every night for nine nights, um, which was amazing, it was cool. But as you can imagine, that means a lot of busyness and running back and forth. And in all that unusual circumstances and all that weirdness and rushing and mindset, uh, 
last Sunday after evening, my wife had a mishap riding our scooter from our house the two blocks back to her dad um, and ended up in the emergency room and ultimately ended up having to have some surgery and all that. And I was 60 miles away and coming back from dropping off some of the girls here at camp and, and now another thing added on to that. It's a lot. It was a lot. But let me tell you guys, even though those things, it was very clear, Brett, I love the definition that he gives for sin. Anything that breaks relationships, anything that breaks relationships between us and the Lord, anything that breaks relationships between us and the people that we interact with, that we can think of those things as being sin. And let me tell you, in all that, we felt the effects of that. And it wasn't that I'm saying, oh, it was because of our sin that all these things had happened. No, but because of the brokenness of this world and the way that sin had come in, we very, very clearly felt the effects of that. The separation of family as our bodies are failing and, and people pass into eternity. The separation of even being from my wife and the, 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 the failingness of her flesh and of our flesh. All these things are coming upon us. Guys, let me tell you that without the Lord and without the body, I think it's too much. As I was doing my, husband, my prepping for my, my cousin's funeral and you think about how do I bring comfort to people? If they don't have a relationship with the Lord, how do I bring comfort? And I, honestly, I don't, it's, it's not the, you don't want to go there and say, oh, it's, it's hopeless. All is hopeless. That's not the way to do it. And what the Lord put on my heart was obviously you have to have a relationship with him, but that's not where he had desires to end it. It's his body. It's his body that is the practical, that brings that connection to us. And for us, just like we saw not too long ago in 1 Peter 4, right, we felt some very specific things from the Lord through you guys in this room and through the community that he put us in, right? We felt his love. If you looked at 1 Peter 4, 8, he said, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Guys, we never felt so much love as what we felt the outpouring continuously, the care, the concern, Right? If we look at, we felt his comfort, the comfort of the Lord coming through you guys, right? As 1 Peter 4 9 said, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Man, we didn't have grumbling. We had overflowing hospitality and food and care and all these things. And his grace, man, we felt the Lord's grace. Even in these crazy times, people are calling me, are you doing? And I was like, it's kind of crazy, but I feel the Lord's grace. We feel pretty good. Right? First Peter 4.10 said, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Let me tell you that the Smith family, the Delgado family by extension, and, and the, my sister-in-law, my father-in-law, both on behalf of them, thank you. But let me tell you guys that if you didn't know those simple things, we very much felt the love of Christ and the design that he has for his body on this earth. And why do I give you guys all that? Well, I want you guys to be clear and upfront to know this is sort of like getting to the application. Why does it matter what we're going to talk about today? Well, I think you have to first establish that the body of Christ, specifically the local church, what we are right here, serves as the practical extension of Jesus to his people on the earth, right? The body of Christ, we're the extension of Jesus to the people on the earth. When you talk to somebody and you say, I want, to, oh, I want to tell you about Jesus and I want to bring you to salvation, I don't want to diminish what that represents, that moment if they come to Christ. 
But guys, if we believe that that's the end, that okay, somebody made a decision and that's now life is different, guys, we are the practical extension of what Jesus believed and designed as he built his church. And so I want to put to you into that into your mind because it's through those practical actions, those things that I told you, the way that we relate, the way that we love each other, the way that we support each other, even in the most difficult and crazy of situations like we had, Lord, that's how, we, that's how we make disciples. That's the great commission. When the Lord said to go into the world and make disciples, it wasn't just get people to make a decision and walk away. It was to bring God's love and his grace and his hope in situations that would otherwise have none. And so that's super important. I want you guys up front, hopefully you feel that, that you don't need to have had the situations that we went through. Uh, hopefully if you've had those kinds of things in your life, you very practically have felt that. And if not, we want to. We want to be that for you and we want to be as a body of that for you guys. So as we look now and we go into First Peter chapter 5, that's what Paul, he's been talking to, to us, to all of us, to the church. Now he's going, to, he's going to shift his focus as we kind of finish up. And in chapter 5, he's shifting his focus from just the general body and he's going to now specifically talk to leaders that oversee that local body. Now, it might, like, oh, leaders, I don't want to do politics and organizations and structures. Honestly, in our, especially in our American context where we want freedom and we want to be free to do, when you start talking about that, it's kind of like, ah, you get people, it's like, ah, I don't want, like, I just want to worship and go. But guys, if you like it or not, whether you want it or not, whether we like it or not, whether it's informal or it's formal, whether we recognize it or it's unrecognized, leadership is a given in any human society. It's how it works. We don't come together in a, just a big group and, and sit around. If we did that, we'd all be still staring at each other in this open gym, hoping and wondering what was going to happen. Like, oh, I hope something's going to happen this morning. Like, Lord, I hope you come down. Like, leadership is a given. And by extension, every church has leaders. I don't think you guys, like, these aren't groundbreaking items for you, but... I just want to establish that whether we like it or not, whether we think about that or not, um, that's just how people and God has made us. So, like I said, I want to give you that application because if, I, if what the Lord and the, what the Lord is doing in this body and that practical part of that grace and mercy and love is so critical to bringing God's love to our community and leaders are the ones who are here helping to organize it, and make sure it works and, and keep all that stuff going and to keep people healthy and to set up, uh, you know, all these sort of structures, then it is imperative that we as believers focus our thinking on and understand what the Bible says about what kind of leaders the church should have. It's imperative that we all, leaders and people who are here in the body, understand what kind of leaders the church should have, right? Because... If we get bad leaders or we don't care, eventually that gap is going to be filled. And if it's not good, all those wonderful things that, that we felt from you guys become disorganized. They go away. They aren't there. And suddenly the work of the church is diminished. Can bad leadership kill the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. But can it dampen it and make it difficult and make it ugly? Absolutely so guys, I wanted to put that in your mind up front. That's the application. We should care about the kind of leaders that we have. And so because of that, we need to understand what the Bible says about leaders. And that's where we find ourselves 
after that extended intro in my classic style of talking too much, that's where we find ourselves in 1 Peter 5. So if you guys would turn your, yourself, if you're not there, navigate, click on a link, however you get there. Let's read 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5, and we'll read from the ESV as we have been uh, since we started as a church. It says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. All right, so here we see right off the bat, first jump in, right, first part of the verse. So Paul, Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you. So who, who are these elders? What does that mean? Um, I know for me and for most people, the first thought when you hear elders, we say, respect your elders. It's the, we think of these older people. We think of people with you know, gray and white hair. We think of a, a possibly a, a boardroom if we're talking about um, some kind of a structure or a business. We think of a, a boardroom with these guys and gals in, in business attire, you know, all old and experienced sitting around a table. At least that's me, right? And that's because with age, we usually impart some assumption, sometimes not good, but so it's still an assumption of, of wisdom because with experience, comes wisdom. But if you guys have looked around our church and been here long enough, you'll see we don't have many people like that. <laughs> we don't have many, uh, many people old and gray and, and, and uh, you know, go, I, I tell my kids as, as they see, I get a little bit more all the time. Daddy, what's that in your hair? I said, oh, that's, that's wisdom coming through. So, you know, a little bit of wisdom. I, Brett's got a little bit of wisdom uh, coming here on the sides. Uh, uh, Jeff, he's, he's, re, he's re rejecting wisdom, I think, entirely. <laughs> John, John's coming along also with some of his wisdom. But um, yeah, in our church, we have four elders, if you don't know that. I, I think we may have kind of gathered that through osmosis, but I want to be very clear. We have four elders here. Brett, who I think everybody would clearly know. Myself, uh, Jeff in the back, and John. We're make up the, the elder team for this church. And as I saw, none of us are particularly old. We're also not particularly wise, uh, but we are who we are. We may not fit that stereotype that we have in our minds either uh, of, you know, these kind of old businessy stuffy guys in the room. At least I hope we don't. Uh, but, but that's who our elder team is here. The Bible tells us that elders are men that are appointed by Christ to oversee and care for the local expression of the church. Right? So we're here to care and oversee for the local expression of the church. To be clear, while Christ is the head of the universal church, elders are appointed to oversee and care for this, this local body. Right? The Lord is, is overseeing over all. He is supreme. We'll talk about that a little bit more in these verses. But, but somebody's got to come here and say, okay, are we going to come inside? Are we going to be outside? Are we going to have kids? Are we going to do that? Or where's the Lord guiding us? What's the direction that he go? And, and that's who elders are. And as we look 
in the Bible, there's really three words that are used for the same office. Because you might say, well, okay, there's a pastor and there's an elder. I've heard some people say bishop or overseer. I've heard all these titles thrown around. And depending on your denominational or church experience background, you're like, well, I, I think like the bishop or the friar is like this, this person up here and, and, you know, whatever. Let's go back and say, what does the Bible have and how does the Bible describe this position? So we see three words used in the Bible for the same office. We see elder, which, or presbuteros is the one Greek word. And as Dave says, we got to follow the script. So I got to have some Greek words to make sure I, I come across as legit. So presbuteros is one of the words that you'll see. And that's usually translated elder. Episkopos, that sounds really fancy to me. That's usually translated overseer uh, or bishop. And then poimen, which is shepherd. And you see all three of those words, but you see them all three used interchangeably. In fact, in our passage today, if you have a fancy electronic Bible or if you at home you have a, a concordance, you would actually see that all three of those words are used in this one passage as they talk about leaders. And I, don't, I think you can see that this isn't like he's talking to in the first half of the sentence, the local elder, and then the second half of the sentence to some bishop who's over like all these churches. As far as the Bible is concerned is what we see Pastor equals elder equals overseer or bishop, if you've heard that term. They're, they're all the same. Now, us in our human expression of trying to sort these things out, we've, we've variously done in different churches and denominations. We've assigned different things. But I want to bring you guys back and say, what does the Bible say? And as we see in the Bible, those positions and those words are used interchangeably. But what we do see all through the Bible is that the emphasis is that these are Christ's chosen leaders for his local church. The elders are the chosen leaders for the local church. Uh, a couple of verses that we can pull, and there's actually quite a few. Acts 14, starting in verse 21 to 23. This is now in the time of Acts as, as Paul is going. And it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And now here we go, key. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We can jump to Titus. In Titus 1.5, it says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And if you jump over to James, James 5, 14, it says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Right, we see in all these verses and more, when you talk about the needs and the expression of the local church and leadership, it was important that as they got established that they appointed elders to structure and oversee the church. And when they needed practical care or they needed somebody to come in and, and be that representative, they called for the elders. These are Christ's chosen leaders for the local church. I love this quote in one of the messages I was listening to uh, from Reality, a church called Reality Santa Barbara. Uh, one of their teachers named Ryan Hilner, he said, elders are the governing body appointed to oversee and lead the church under the headship of Christ. So guys, if you want to study more, I mean, there's this whole area of church organization, you've likely seen or heard of all different kinds of things, of 
congregational models that look more like what we're used to as an American context with voting and, and the body having votes or uh, different models where you have this sort of pastor leader over one main person and everybody's coming behind. There's volumes written about this. This whole area is called ecclesiology with the same ecclesi, ecclesia, the, the gathering, the way they describe the church. This is the, the sort of the study of how the church is organized. Please go look more if you guys would like to do that. But for the sake of this message, we really believe and feel that elders, a team of elders will talk about is how the, the vision that the Lord had for his local church. And if we think that's the case, if we, we say we got to have elders, then you have to ask yourself, well, what are the qualifications of these elders? And there's a couple of like really the, where people go in the Bible where this is, I mean, it really laid out. The one I'm going to read today in 1 Timothy 3, if you want to turn or click there, 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. This, this says, uh, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's the episcopate word that we talked about, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, great word, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. If you guys want to look at another sort of similar, very explicit list, you can go to, to Titus 1. That's another place I, I could have taught the same message, you know, and, and use that exact verse. Uh, about 90% of those two passages overlap and there's a little bit of, of uh, additional explanation in those two places, but... Those are very clear qualifications of an elder. I'll tell you guys, I read that even now as I teach and I'm like, oh, maybe I should walk off to the side. I'm not sure that I can meet that. Maybe we'll just stare at an empty podium. But uh, if you look at all that and I try to break it down into a digestible thing for you guys, I think that those three, that whole list can be, can be summarized into three kind of areas and we'll use the, uh, you know, the alliteration with C's of character, Competence and compatibility. So three areas of qualification, character, competence, and compatibility. If we look just quickly at that list that we had there and try to pull some of the things out with character, let's look at character, right? So it says one, a husband of one wife. They're like, oh, what, is, what, what does that mean? Well, literally a lot of times, how do we translate that? That's, that's really translated like as a one woman man. Think of that. So it's not a man who's, I'm with this woman here, but my eyes sometimes wander over there. It's not, um, whatever, like this is a one woman man. Somebody who is committed to a biblical relationship with his, eye, with his wife. No wandering eyes, no wandering mind. Now, do we all struggle with those things from time to time? Absolutely. We still are men of flesh. But you have to have a spirit of a one, being a one woman man. And let me be clear, you may not even be married, but you have to have that mind that I have of committed to, a, if I'm in a relationship, a biblical 
founded relationship with your wife. And we talked about the, the beauty and the, the, the give and take and the, the supplement of that in, in 1 Peter specifically. Right, it says he needs to be sober-minded or self-controlled. He needs to have control of his body and of his mind. Respectable, which is like you know, well-arranged and modest. We know these words. How do you define them? It's a, sometimes a little, you, you know it better in yourself than what I could say. But hospitable, right? He needs to love strangers, have a desire to connect and to welcome people in, whether it's to this church, but even more so in, in all of his life. You're somebody who welcomes people in. He needs to be above reproach. Ooh, that one seems tough. But that's not sinless. It's that you display a mature, consistent Christian conduct. And that doesn't leave any reason for somebody to accuse you of things. Obviously, we can't always control what people accuse us of. But obviously, we desire our character as one that there's no real legitimate way that people can accuse you of things. He needs to be well thought of by outsiders. As I said, well, that's tough. But an elder needs to have a good reputation in the community. Yeah, outside the church. And that's, that's a little intimidating. We can't, like I said, we can't control how we're perceived. But if I was a controversial figure in this community that put people off, it would be awkward for you guys to bring people in and say, oh, here's my church. And they come in, they're like, oh, well, that, that guy is here. No, it doesn't mean we have to be unprincipled, that we have to be uh, wishy-washy. But we're called to go into the world and to make disciples. And if we can't be well thought of and principled but regarded well by outsiders, then, then you're not really in a position to be an elder. It says not a new convert. Well, why is that? Well, because a lack of spiritual maturity, you may not be ready. That's going to lead to pride. Instead of having a servant heart, now you're going to be like, oh, look at this position I have. Look at these things. I read that list. Yes, I'm all those. And let me add a few more things that I am, right? That's a lot of times just in the zeal and excitement of being young and a new or a new believer, sometimes not young, but a new convert. You don't understand. You don't have that depth of experience to see the real victories and hurt that also come along with those things. So not a new convert. If I wrapped all these up, and, and there's a book that we went through as, as uh, you know, and it was, well, the Bible, that's one, uh, no secret. But there was a, a book that we went through that really, I thought, brought these, a lot of these thoughts on eldership. It was called Gospel Eldership by a guy named Robert Thune. And honestly, um, you know, I don't know how many books people read. Shane, I could probably put that one on your side. It might be a while, I know. But um, actually, Shane went through this book with us. Uh, but it's a great book that takes a lot of these thoughts and puts it up. I highly recommend it. It was very formative for us as an elder team. Um, and he said about this sort of area of character, a biblically qualified elder is one whose life and heart have been submitted to God and his word. That's, that's how you'd sum up elder's character. If we now move to the next one, right? We said character was the first area. Now we'll move into our next C, competence. You're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. He's got to be competent. Well, what we saw there in 1 Timothy, what does that mean? Well, one, he's got to be able to teach. Well, okay, we know that's good. You guys are going to give me an evaluation. We'll pass out surveys after this, uh, and then we'll let John read them. Um, but it's really, what does that mean? It means that you have to not just know the word and, and have it. Like, that's actually one skill, but there's a different skill of knowing the word, but now being able to impart that knowledge to others in a way that's accessible and understandable, 
right? If I came up here and there's some people, you know, PhD, THD, they have like 75 initials after their name. They know the theology. They know the word. They probably have a bunch of it memorized. But sometimes it's difficult for them to make it so that you understand it, right? There was a whole time in history of the church where people believed that only the, the priests and the pastors could even access the word, that they had some ability and that the people couldn't even do that. We don't believe that. God's word is there. It can be understood. But as elders, we're called to be able to teach that to you, to not just know it, but to make it accessible to you, to make it understandable. Right? If you looked at Titus, and we didn't go there, but I'll give you some, some hints, some, some cliff notes there. Uh, Part of that is being able also as an elder in your competence being able to refute those who contradict, right? We're going to have people who come in and it doesn't mean that we don't, we figured it out. If anybody comes and asks us a question or pushes back that we're going to just, you know, go meet them. That's not what that means. But if somebody's got a spirit of just questioning and pushing and trying to, to do it, we as elders need to be ready to take the word and apply it and be able to refute those who contradict, maybe with different worldviews and that whole area, there's the thing they call apologetics. There's got to be some ability to take the word and to defend what we believe against those who might come in and try to, to, uh, to take it down, right? Also, it says that we need to be able to exhort in sound doctrine. So, okay, now we can know the word and we can pass the word in a message that we prepare, but you also need to be able to take what you know about the Bible and, and, and apply that to specific instances, whether that's a specific instance of unbelief, if you meet somebody and they're struggling, whether that's doubt, whether that's sometimes disobedience. An elder is called to not only know the word for his own self, to be able to teach the word in a way that's understandable, but allow the spirit to work through him and to bring that correct word, sometimes a verse, a passage, an experience biblically based and use that to exhort somebody when they most need it in sound Bible-based doctrine. An elder needs to be able to use the scripture as a foundation to counsel, to disciple, to evangelize, right? That's, that's a big list, but that's what the Lord wants for his, 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 his leaders in his church. If we also look in family life under competence, right? He's gotta be competent first in leading his own home. It specifically says in our verses he needs to manage his household well. Well, guess what, guys? If I can't be a godly leader in that little, small community of people that I've given, how can I come and be a godly leader amongst a bigger group? Whether we like it or not, how we, how we run our home, that's sort of like, you know, they've, people have heard people say that's like your, your small congregation, and then you got a little bit, maybe your, that's your wife and you, that's your smallest, and then your family, and then the big congregation, right? Either way, that's one of the first places that you guys should look. And maybe I should come back and say, as I tell you these things, even though obviously I'm not desiring of being judged in whatever sort of way, the goal of this message is to equip you to challenge and expect all these things that we're saying of your leaders, of your elders. And as intimidating as that might be for us, as much of a charge that might be, we don't desire to hide it because this is what the Bible says we should do. So family life, you got to be competent and you got to be competent starting in your home, right? If we look, uh, there's a, another uh, 
summary from the same book, it said, men who qualify for eldership are men whose wives appreciate and respect their spiritual leadership in the home. They are men whose children love their dad and follow his leadership. They are not harsh or domineering toward their wives and children. They are men who can teach other men how to be godly husbands and fathers. All right, that even sort of brings that teaching and that family thing all together. One thing I do want to note here, marriage is not a requirement to be an elder and to be in leadership in the church. It's not a requirement. Now, in the biblical times, it was culturally extremely common, but it is not a requirement. But it was true. Most people were married, even in our time. Many people, although less so, are married. And if they were, the way they managed their families was a good first indicator of how competent they could be. But I do want to make it clear that you shouldn't say, oh, you're not married. You can't be an elder. Sorry, you can't be wise enough. It's not a requirement that we see anywhere in the Bible. And the last part of qualification, this one may not be as clear, but I think just as important, is an area called compatibility. We summarize it as compatibility, right? And we can actually go now to 1 Peter 5, 2. We're going to actually get to the uh, second half of the verse, right? It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Guys, elders are not called and they're not aspiring to some abstract office of elder, right? I don't go walk somewhere else. I don't go even across town and be like, ah, I'm, uh, I'm an elder here. People are like, oh, okay, that's weird. You're not really that old. I don't know what you really mean, right? A man doesn't aspire to the office of eldership in the abstract. He aspires to the office of eldership in a particular local church. And he needs to be excited about that vision, the values, the ministry philosophy of that church where he's feeling called to be a leadership. It seems obvious when you say it, why would you want to, it's not even why you would want, but the Lord doesn't call up Somebody who's like, I believe that we should do something totally different, and I, but I'm an elder in this church. What is that going to do? That's going to just divide that elder team, and that's going to divide the church. And that doesn't mean that we look for elders who think everything exactly the way, like we've got it figured out, and you need to agree that we've got it figured out. That's not what this means. But they do have to have a heart for the ministry philosophy and for the people and the way that this this is being done here. Uh, The way that this one is summarized is that a biblically qualified elder is one who ministers within a specific local context, people, church, mission, and even city. If I went to another place, I would need to sit and be a part of that body and really know before I could know if I was called to be an elder. Otherwise, what am I bringing? I mean, I might have the competence, the knowledge, but if I don't have the heart of what the Lord has put for that body, then I'm not really qualified and in the right place to move into a position of an elder. And now we'll move into a a qualification that um, in our time is probably a bit controversial and I hope to, to take some of that away. But we believe that the role of elder is reserved for men. And I say that and I don't say that. I'm like, ah, it's Father's Day and here's my chance this is guys thing and we're going to get you women. No. Guys, there's a, a, a the way this is described is it's called complementarianism. And I, that, that's a theological word. But it's a viewpoint that men and women have different but complementary roles. And it's not just in leadership. It's in marriage. It's in family life. And it's in the church. And we come to this not from personal biases, 
cultural biases, but by a careful reading of scripture. Honestly, I, I think sometimes I'd be happy if the Lord's like, all the elders will be women. Because then I'd be like, ah, okay. Just lead me. Show me where we need to go, ladies. Let me know what you want to do. But we want to be careful in all things and search the scripture and see what it is. And so what do we see? I could teach and we could teach many things on this and I want to give it some treatment but without going too crazy. But we see and we know from the Bible that both men and women are made equally in God's image. Despite what our society now wants to pick out from the Bible and say, oh, look at how that thing or look at that and look how they treat women. We see across all of the Bible, if you take the breadth of it, that men and women are equally made in God's image. God didn't say, I made men and then, oh yeah, I got made women. It was men and women that they are all in God's image. But we see a distinction in the roles that the Lord gives in the church. And this is very similar to what we learned even, like I said, in, in 1 Peter 4 about husband and wives being equal but having different roles. And if you're in a marriage, you know this, you feel this. Wives, hopefully you don't feel inferior. In fact, you're probably totally the opposite. I know in our house, my wife's like, okay, I'm waiting. You're going to come around to what I already know. And I'm like, yes, I'm trying, I'm trying, right? But we have equal and different roles. And that's fine. That's good. And the differentiation in the roles doesn't imply superiority or inferiority. In fact, it, it implies that there's a divine order to the structure of our families and to the church. God didn't just throw the dice, be like, oh, men, list, men hit on the dice, that's how we go. No, there's a divine order to how God structured things. What do we see specifically? And there's a whole bunch of verse references or places that you could look, but all mentions of elders that we see in the New Testament are males. And so, okay, we say that, but what we do also see is that there's not a, other, another position in all of the church that's restricted to, to men. Every other part of it is open to anyone. And we see women in the Bible leading, prophesying, praying, and occupying many other roles of leadership in the church. And that's the same way that we feel. We seek to take exactly what we see in the Bible and try to do that here. And so women, as I say this, and I say it humbly and, and sort of like, wow, in light of that list, I think I'd rather, like I said, have the women be the elders. But we see incredible opportunities here. But we also believe if we're true to what we see in the word that, we, that this, this role or this position of elder has been chosen by the Lord divinely for men. And that's, there's probably things about that that the Lord's gonna teach us and show us in heaven someday that we're gonna be like, oh, oh, interesting. I don't know why I didn't see that. Another thing that we believe is that we see that the Bible shows us that in all places he calls a plurality, multiple elders. He doesn't just call a single person, but he desires a plurality of elders. And so we can see like in the verses we just covered, it's not, you know, Peter's not writing to, an el to the elder. He's writing to elders. If you look at, like again, I could give you probably about 25 verse references that we could go through uh, with letters to the elders in plural and not just to a single pastor or teacher or elder, but to elders, plural. And we see that all throughout the New Testament. If we remember back, we just talked about those key character qualifications of humility, gentleness, pride, not prideful, being respect, respectable. We can sort of make sense to us why the Lord would desire that it would be plurality of men and not just a single one, right? It is extremely difficult 
to be in a place and to be in the role of making decisions and by yourself and, and not and remain in the humble and gentle, right? It becomes overwhelming and you get tired and you, you just want to make things happen. And so if we look, we see that Paul, who was called directly to ministry by Jesus, right? The people say that's a, an apostle with a capital A, right? He submitted his ministry and his calling to a group of elders in Jerusalem. If you guys turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, we see. Then Paul wrote, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or not, had not run in vain. The them that Paul is talking about here is a council of elders, a group of people who he was submitting his ministry to. And honestly, I, I wonder about this because you look at the book of Acts, we see all the stuff and the disciples that walked with Jesus and we go to the book of Acts and it's like, and then Paul and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, without Paul, I'm not sure how we would be here, how we would know all these things. But even Paul, who an apostle with a capital A, the Lord took his vision and spoke to him and caused those things to change his life, submitted his life to another group of men because he desired to remain humble. He desired to be shown that he was on the right path and he, he wanted to follow this, this way that the Lord had given him. If we continue then into verse, the second half of verse five, right? It says, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, right? So we see here now even Peter also. Peter was in the closest of Jesus' circles. He was like in the top two or three of the disciples. He got to go off in the secret side discussions with Jesus and heard the most deepest intimate things. He didn't consider himself above others, right? He wasn't in this local, he wasn't in this local context, but even he's acknowledging this idea of submitting himself to a group of people. So we believe a plurality of elders. We don't, there's not a number. In our church, we have four. For a while, we had three. Uh, maybe someday we'll have six. Maybe someday we'll have less. But we believe a plurality of elders is the model that the Bible shows us. Okay, so now we know all these things about elders and who they are, their qualification, right? So what's the function of elders? And we can go now and back into 1 Peter 5, 2. It says, Peter said, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And I believe Peter, as he wrote this, he had the minds in his word. You might remember uh, back in John chapter 21, there's a, a time now Jesus had resurrected. He's back. He's found the disciples. They had, after he had died and been buried, they were kind of reeling. They didn't know what was going on. This didn't make sense with what they were expecting for the Messiah. And then Jesus arose. And when he arose and he showed himself to the elders, he found that they had gone back a lot of times to what they were doing. And so he found John fishing and he showed himself to, or he, I'm sorry, he found Peter fishing and he, he showed himself to Peter and he was making a meal there preparing with them. And you guys may remember Peter was the one who denied Christ and there's this interchange and I won't read the whole interchange, but I think Peter had in his mind this very interchange, right? And that was where Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And what did he say? He said, tend, shepherd, what we said, an elder does shepherd my sheep. And he did it again and he said, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus this time said, feed my sheep, right? So what is the function of elders? We see, I think as Peter had in his mind directly from the words of Jesus 
elders are called to shepherd the flock, to protect the flock. You guys are the flock, by the way. That's weird Bible. But shepherd the people and protect the people. Watch for and guard against wolves. All these farm references. I don't know. I got to come up with some uh, modern day items. I don't know what they'd be. But guard against people who might come in and try to to, uh, break things up and cause division. Be examples. Visit and pray with the sick as we, as we talked about in the, op- the beginning, what you did for our family. Exercise oversight, preach, teach, exhort in sound doctrine, and refute those who would contradict. Those are just part of the responsibilities of an elder. And so now we can take these things and say, what are the responsibilities of an elder? Well, I, they can, they can uh, we actually, even in our church specifically, I think this is from Brad and maybe he got it, but we, we kind to boil these into three Ds. So you can remember, right? We say elders are basically responsible for doctrine, what we believe, for direction, where we being the conduit through Jesus and through the spirit of where he would have our body and where they would go and what we would do and how we would do it and discipline. And thankfully that one is one that we haven't really had to do. And that's not one that I, you know, look forward to have to doing, but should we find that we get something in our church that develops or a person who's not following the word, we're called to be the ones who provide discipline. And that's what the goal of bringing somebody back, of bringing them continuing to be in the flock. And I'm not going to go deep into all those things. I think you guys have a sense of what those are. We've talked about these qualifications. But a, a few things that that does not mean, right? That does not mean that in our function, we are God's designated holy people on behalf of the church, right? We're part of this body just like all of us. We don't think of ourselves as, oh, the elders and then the church. We're part of you guys, right? So we're not the designated holy people. And if that's how you believe, you're like, oh, well, as long as Brad or as long as Kevin is walking with the Lord or John or Jeff, then, then I'm good. No, the Lord calls each of us to a relationship specifically and intimately, personally with him. We are not designated on your behalf as holy people. We're also not the people who execute all the functions of the church, as you've heard, and Brett's talked about, in the, right, we need, we are all together in this. Uh, we have a lot of skills. We're blessed to have people and to have elders who have all the different things with Brett, with his knowledge and understanding of the Bible and uh, jo- Jeff's vision and for things and John's organizational and operational stuff and, and my experience managing big groups of people. It's, it's crazy what the Lord brings in even a small body. But we're not called to be the ones who do everything. If you guys are waiting for us to do all the stuff, to make the, the, the work of the church happen in all places, guys, it's all of us. A lot of times people, we get questions of when are we gonna kick that off? And it's like, we're ready. When you're ready, we're ready. And that's not us pushing it on you. We wanna make the structure. We wanna provide the support. We may personally come alongside you, but as elders, our job is not to execute all the functions of this church. We are not the exclusive hands and feet of this body. And honestly, this is not something that we struggle with. Sometimes you'll have churches and they're like, oh, I heard somebody's sick. Somebody's in the hospital. They're like, oh, well, did the elder go? Well, they should. To be clear, the Bible says the elders should minister to the sick. They should be available for the hurting. But if you ever find yourself saying, well, okay, I hope the elder went and took care of it. I encourage you, if you're connected to that person, you're equally called to come alongside us as a body, right? The elders are not the exclusive hands and feet and and example of Jesus to this church. So as we continue on then, 
We can see now, he talks, Peter talks a little bit about how elders should act. If we go into 1 Peter 5, the second half into verse 3, he says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I was looking at the last time I taught because I was like, oh, I remember this story. And it was this, this passage James and John were walking with Jesus. It was, it's such a bizarre passage when I look back and read it. And they had their mom go to Jesus and say, Lord, uh, when, when you're in heaven, make my sons be like the two, the two sons at your right and left side, right? That was such a weird story. That's Matthew 20, verse, chapter 20, verse 20 to 28. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll read it a little bit here. So it says, if you want to go there, Matthew 20. It says, but Jesus called to them and said, actually, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm intertwining, but we will read Matthew 20, verse 25, right? Jesus called them after the mother had come and asked this sort of crazy thing about elevating her sons. And he said in chat, verse 25, Jesus called to them, to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord, lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, we see in that story, I guess what's so weird is even the disciples who walked with Jesus for his entire public ministry on the earth, they didn't understand the kind of kingdom, the kind of leadership, the kind of structure that the Lord wanted. And you'll hear this frequently called this upside down pyramid, right? In worldly terms, when we think of organizational leadership, we have this pyramid, right? We have some focal person at the top, the CEO, the president, the leader, the, the guy. And then as you go down, there's layers and layers of, of leadership and structure until you get to the people. But what Jesus did here and what I taught, you know, is he, he wanted to turn all that on its head. And the disciples, even walking with him, had missed it. Guys, a cruciform, which I love that word. I, I'm getting that from somewhere else. I'm not claiming it. A cross, that's a cross-shaped, a cross-informed life is one that is continuously humbled and broken in light of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Matthew Henry is a, a, a really old, really deep, rich commentary. Um, and he said, those are commonly most confident who are least acquainted with the cross. Nothing makes more mischief among brethren than desire of greatness, right? The list that your, your view of the world and your view of structure is formed by the cross, by this immense undeserving sacrifice of Christ, right? The more that you're less, or the less that you're acquainted and that you're formed by that, right? The more that mischief, as he said, mischief comes amongst the brethren as we desire what we see in this earth, which is a desire for greatness. And what we saw with James and John, even after they had been walking and healing and seeing all these things, right? So what we see here, Peter's saying is the role of an elder isn't something that you do for gain or because you're required to, but rather something that you're doing with a humble and a, wheel, a willing heart, just as Jesus humbly and willingly even though he was blameless, went to the cross, right? That cruciform, that cross-shaped vision is something that comes into us. And I want to be clear, zeal, excitement, that's not the issue. We're not talking about, like when Paul says with, you know, with zeal, it's not that he doesn't want people to be bland and boring. It's that he wants us 
to not do it for any selfish or shameful purposes, right? So all of the world qualifications that we have in the world, they can't overcome the sin nature of man. And so what are we called as elders to do? We want to point you guys back to the feet of Jesus. And a shepherd doesn't push from the back. If you ever see a shepherd, he doesn't push from the back because it's like, I, I tell people at work, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a professional cat herder. I have a nice uh, animated gif that I send to, uh, to Natalie sometimes. You ever seen the, the guys herding cats? It's like, it's weird. How do you get a group of cats to go across the thing? Right? Cat herders, it doesn't work. You have to lead from the front. And that's what all these qualifications are. It's not about grabbing people and forcing them, but it's about modeling that life of Christ in a way that's so desirable that this body wants to do a similar thing. And right, the answer though is, as much as we try, we're still men, we're still human, we can't meet all these qualifications all the time, right? And that's where we get to now, as we get to verse Peter, 1 Peter 5, verse 4, Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd. And it says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Right? We've already established that pastor equals elder equals bishop, that whether you kind of had that vision or you thought that, that, that those are equal, but who we are not equal to is the great shepherd. And where we fall short in our walk and where we uh, need to overcome, we can all, we all, pastors, elders, church members, we all fall under the purview of Jesus, the great shepherd. He's the ultimate guide. He's the ultimate example. He's the only one that could take on flesh yet remain blameless. That is not what we are able to do, right? And the gospel remain, reminds us that God does not accept us based on our competence and compatibility, but solely on the merits of Jesus Christ. That is encouraging to me as an elder because I don't, I, I don't usually meet those things. But what I don't want you to do is I don't, because you might hear this, you might say, well, that sounds great. I'd love to be an elder, but I don't feel like I meet, this, meet those things. Guys, I don't want you to be confused that if you don't feel qualified or maybe you're not to qualified to do something such as becoming an elder, that does not mean that you're not acceptable as a person, as a, as a, a follower of Christ, right? And also, if you are an elder, what we don't want to forget when we're called is that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. When you feel like that list, when I look at that list and I see and I'm like, man, I, Lord, I can't meet all that. Don't forget that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. And it's guaranteed. If you go into John 16, 13, it's guaranteed that when the Holy Spirit comes, that we would grow and learn and minister. So, even so, with all those things, an elder who ministers faithfully it does say here he will receive an eternal reward. I'm waiting to find out what that is. John and I, we can compare our crowns, this crown of life, what they're saying. Um, I don't know what it's going to be like, right? But it does tell us here that even though it may seem intimidating or not good, this call to service, this giving of oneself, this role of elder, it is something that the Bible tells us is good to be desired, right? In fact, in 1 Timothy, it said, if you desire to be an elder, you desire a noble task. So I don't want to make it sound all bad. So, okay, as we, we come to the end and I'm finding, yeah, I'm going a little bit long. I apologize. What do we do? How do we respond to their leadership now, to the leadership of the elders? And that's where Peter ends it in 1 Peter 5 or where we end it as we, we go. And it says, likewise, you who are younger, 
be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right? In light of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, we should, elders should willingly and lovingly submit ourselves in body, in service to the body, right? That's that cross-formed, cruciformed leadership. But likewise, the body, all of us of the church, we must submit to the elders and to each other in humility as well. We should know that the Lord is the only perfect leader. And knowing that the elders are only called to our role by the Holy Spirit and to the commendation of godly men, that we submit each other in humility. And why does Peter call out the young here? I, that was a little bit is weird, but I, I think it makes sense, right? Young people are the ones who tend to have zeal and excitement. They have a lot of opinions, but they don't always have a lot of experience. And so much, I think like the, the restrictions on recent converts that don't make them elders, I think the young are also more likely to be not mature in the faith. And so I think that's why Peter gave a specific shout out to the young and said, hey, you guys also make sure, even though it might seem like they're crazy old men, submit yourselves. So guys, let me kind of wrap and say, you might say, okay, well, that sounds great. That sounds interesting and intimidating. How are our elders here? How did you guys become an elder, right? Well, we're called first and foremost by the Holy Spirit. It's something that the Lord puts in your heart, right? We saw if you desire it, it's a good thing. You don't need to feel like, oh, I'm just a martyr. Nobody, ah, oh, you're making me an elder. Okay. Right? It's, it's okay to say you desire it. It's a good thing. It should be, though, a desire that comes from a, a calling or a nudge of the Holy Spirit. You should feel an internal compulsion or an aspiration to the role. And then how did we do it here? Well, that call to eldership, it's tested and confirmed by other godly leaders in this specific church. Right? Because right, remember we said it's not just competence and um, it's also compatibility, competence and character, but also compatibility. We want to say, are you compatible here? A couple of things, one quote I'll read you. It says, a calling to eldership is not merely a subjective aspiration. It's an aspiration that has been tested and confirmed by other godly leaders in the context of the local community, church community. So if you guys feel the Lord is putting it on your heart now or maybe in the future, we would love to know that. You shouldn't feel held back to say, I'm interested. It may not be that you're at that place yet of maturity, but we as elders and as the church body would love to come alongside you, to disciple you, to pull out those things that the Lord has in store for you. So as we close it out, right, let's remember. So what an elder, it's not just a faithful, reliable Christian who shows up to meetings and who votes. Right? An elder is a pace setter for the church. It's a leader of strength, of wisdom, of integrity, who lives a life that has character, and it's a character worthy of being imitated and reproduced in every Christian. In, every, in this church and in every Bible-based church, this is what you guys should expect. And I say that, and I hopefully equip you, knowing that that means you're going to turn around and put that same lens onto me. And I'd say... Yes, Lord, if I'm found lacking in those things, I want to fix those things. Brett would say, Jeff, John would say the same thing. And so I want you guys, hopefully, like I said, come back. If you value the function of the church, if you desire and know that the organization of that church and want it to function the way that Christ intended, and we want the work of the Spirit to be as impactful as it can be, then we have to make sure that we understand and can 
raise up and demand leaders who will follow after Christ's heart. 